You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series, A Tour Through John. Now looking at Lesson 9. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Good morning, and welcome back to the Tour Through John. We're beginning in chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself, but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. Okay, here's our introduction. Jesus is certainly becoming really influential. Now, John is is eager for us to to understand it's not Jesus who's really doing the baptizing, it's the disciples. But it doesn't really matter because the reputation is accruing to Jesus. And he's very cautious about his increasing notoriety because he's moving his ministry along with a special sense of time or timing in view. He doesn't want to generate too much publicity too soon. And so he makes a northern retreat. He leaves Judea to go back to Galilee, to the area where, of course, he he grew up and where many of his disciples uh, came from. The story of the Samaritan woman is well known. So Jesus is uh, traveling, in this instance, from Judea to Galilee, that is from Judea uh, in the south to Galilee in the north. Whereas many Jews would have simply bypassed Samaria, even crossing the Jordan, crossing east uh, into Transjordan, so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. Jesus opts for the direct route. There are a lot of different routes that he could have taken. But the Gospel of John simply says he had to go through Samaria, and really, and he does. And in doing so, he challenges prejudice and shatters stereotypes. And maybe that's one reason why we love this chapter so much. I do. I love teaching from it, whether it's group Bible studies, sermons, or classes, there's just so much here. And again, John is different uh, to Matthew, Mark, and Luke in that the narrative bits tend to be longer. So there are a lot more words, uh, much more developed interchanges uh, in the various conversations with people he meets. So he has to go through Samaria. Continuing, verse 5, So he came to a Samaritan city called Sichar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. You know, that well is still there, and it's still in use. Uh, It's at the foot of Mount Gerizim the mountain that was holy to the Samaritans. And you can still drink water from that well, which the locals are more than happy to offer, though um, I would be careful if I were you. And I know it's deep. It's still deep. And I shouldn't have done it, but I wanted to verify. I remember I took a pebble, and when no one was looking, I tossed it down. It was quite a few seconds before I heard the plop at the other end. And so I calculated the depth, something like 60 to 80 meters. Anyway, The Bible says that Jesus was tired and it was about noon. Well, that's in the Revised Standard Version. The Greek actually just says the sixth hour. Well, that's fine. Um, And you could say, well, 
that's when it was, the sixth hour. But that has to be somehow rendered into modern time. And whatever the equivalent is, it's affected by how we understand Jewish time. If you start at 6 a.m., that would yield a time of noon. And that's what uh, certain versions go for, like the NIV or the NLT paraphrase. But beginning at noon, the more likely time of 6 p.m. results. Is that more likely, as in the Holman Christian Standard? Because after all, water was normally drawn at sunrise and sunset, not in the heat of the day. That's hard work. Now, to play it safe, we have, you know, versions saying the sixth hour. Um, Well, New American Standard, for example. On the other hand, it could be that because of the reputation of the woman we're about to meet, she went to the well at an odd hour. So I'm just not certain. I can see more than one way to look at this. Maybe you can too. At any rate, they seem to be alone. And if it was... Uh, at 6 p.m., or if it was you know, 6 a.m., there'd probably be a lot of people around. So Jesus is there. He's been walking for quite some time. Remember, he walked everywhere, and it's about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria. Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. That's a parenthesis that John adds. So he starts this conversation. He is a stranger to her. She is a stranger to him. I'm I'm tempted to call this podcast The Stranger, but I know I'll never get through the whole thing in one morning. But they are strangers. And so often that's how People we meet remain to us. Unless we have a bit of vision, have a bit of friendliness and initiative, and they don't have to remain strangers. Talking with a woman in public was certainly unacceptable in ancient Jewish culture. You know, in a lot of parts of the Middle East today, you really have to keep your distance. If you're a male and there's a female, you don't touch. Um, In many places, you wouldn't even look at her. Uh, Let me give you an example from the early rabbis. One should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with someone else's wife because of the gossip of men. So uh, maybe that helps us appreciate Jesus a bit more. It's a culture where a man wouldn't necessarily even talk with a woman, let alone a foreigner, a stranger, and a Samaritan, and a woman like her. Another ancient Jewish quotation for you. It is forbid, forbidden to give a woman any greeting. Now, I'm not saying that all the Jews followed that rule or that the previous quotation describes the way it was without exception, but they are illustrative. They illustrate uh, what the thinking was among men, religious men of the time. Now, although Jesus is tired, and you could say he's in alien territory, he reaches out to the person that God has put in his path. Sometimes when we're willing to take a chance and engage with a stranger, God moves. Have you experienced that in your life? That you you push yourself, you may not even want to do it, but then you're so glad that you did because something good comes out of it. It's obvious and immensely rewarding when God does this. 
Other times, all we do is plant a seed. But even planting a seed can lead to great things if it germinates in time. Of course, some people just don't listen and there are no guarantees. But if we're going to follow Christ, we need to follow his example. That's quite an example, being tired and yet initiating, and not simply initiating an easy conversation, but beginning a conversation that people would have looked askance at. What are you doing? He asks for a drink of water from the well. And she responds in surprise because he's a man and because he's Jewish. She's quite surprised. I, you think that she probably expected him to say nothing, that there would have been no talk at all. And she would have silently returned with her bucket to the town of Sichar. But that is not the way Jesus let it be. Rather, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us the well and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? So see, Jesus continues the conversation. He very quickly brings it around to a a spiritual kind of tone, which was, okay, uh, maybe less surprising, more normal in his day than in ours. But still, the way he does it, his intriguing reference to living water, his implication that he he's actually happy to serve the woman, although he's asked her to serve him, uh, I think would have overcome any awkwardness. Very quickly, they seem to be engaged in the conversation. And that phrase, living water, that's a, a, a way of putting it in ancient languages. Living water is moving water uh, as opposed to still. But it's more than just living water in the sense of flowing, like a stream. Um, it's, it has to do with life. And, and God uh, often speaks of himself and his word in terms of, uh, of, of water, living water, uh, particularly in the prophet Jeremiah. Now, the woman replied, you have no bucket, the well is deep. Does she know that he's referring to spiritual water? Or does she think that he means actual water? Maybe he knows about some other uh, water source underneath the ground. Uh, maybe we can't be definitive on that. But she does ask him the questions, where do you get that water? And are you greater than our ancestor Jacob? See, the Samaritans claimed a similar heritage to the Jews. They diverged. The fork in the road came in the 8th century BC. We read all about it in 2 Kings 17. That's the beginning of the Samaritans. But they, they claimed uh, the same patriarchs. Um, they, they went back, as the, the Jews did, to Abraham. It's a little bit like the Muslims, although maybe I'm stretching it a little bit. Uh, they, they want to go back to Abraham too, but not through Isaac. They want to go through Ishmael, which is a bit of fiction. The Quran never says they're descended from Ishmael. It's, it's hard when you have two people groups, two different religions, yet they have a lot in common. They're, they're living close to one another. There's going to be tension. And the, the differences are emphasized in this passage, but also the similarities. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give 
will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus knows her spiritual need. We should know the spiritual need. Who have we met in the world who has not sinned and who has no need of God? Nobody. I mean, everyone has needs. Everyone's broken, damaged in some way. And it's only by being superficial that we're able to pretend that God doesn't really need us to start these conversations. He knows her need, and he turns a conversation in a spiritual direction, referring to that living water again. That uh, you can, if you check out Ezekiel forty-seven and Zechariah fourteen, you, you'll see the the allusion. And this will also uh, be important in John seven verse thirty-eight. We'll come to that. Uh, it's an occasion of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, as is typical throughout John, she seems to interpret literally his. Spiritual, figurative words. He's on channel one, the spiritual heavenly wavelength. She's on channel two, the physical earthly wavelength. At least initially she is. But he turns her so that she can understand. And of course, we'll have irony later as his own disciples are, unfortunately, on channel two. They don't get it. I'd like to refer also to a a well-known saying. It's in the apocryphal book of Sirach. And the references in the notes with this uh, podcast This is it. Whoever feeds on me will be hungry no more, and whoever drinks from me will thirst no more. Hmm. It's very similar to the Proverbs as well, uh, in the need to, our need to pursue wisdom. So this passage would have been well known to the Jews, since the Apocrypha was normally included with their scriptures up until around the year 200 AD. So check out the allusion to Jeremiah 2. I'll let you do that on your own. Uh, Let's see how much more we can read. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you've said is true. He looks into the heart of this neglected five times abandoned woman. And we know that he looks into her heart with love. When he says, call your husband, he knows that's going to bring their conversation to an even deeper level. And he knows she doesn't have a husband. How does he know? Uh, Maybe there was some physical sign. Maybe it was obvious in her demeanor. But Jesus also knew what was in the heart of men. Remember the end of John chapter 2. Now, obviously, he doesn't condone her living in sin, but he reaches out to her in genuine concern. And he's going to be calling her to truthfulness and to spiritual life. Okay? And we're going to see um, a kind of a transformation in her. Uh, There's something about it that that is instant, uh, but there's there's more than just the, that uh, immediate change as she warms up to him, as she gets on the spiritual wavelength. Uh, it, it's more than that. Uh, there is, well, kind of a hint of the new birth. It's not there, uh, but I would like to believe that this is one of the uh, Samaritans who became a Christian 
uh, when the time was right, maybe through Philip's ministry in Acts 8 when he went there. So he's, he cares for her. She's been through uh, many husbands, serial relationships. And uh, I mean, it's pretty rare for you and me to meet someone who's been married three or four times, right? We, we do occasionally, but this is five times. And time number six, it looks like she didn't bother to get married. Uh, just imagine the pain, the disillusionment. It's not like, you know, she's had all this practice at being married, so she's getting better and better. Probably, no, the hold has been deeper and deeper. So the woman says to him, sir, I see you're a prophet. It's simply not true that when she starts this next line of conversation, she's uncomfortable and trying to change the topic, as I've heard it said, on occasion, because she talks about the mountain. Is it Gerizim or is it Zion? I don't think so. I think rather she's she's going to jump right to the issue, the issue that separates the Jews and the Samaritans. Um, Spoken or unspoken, this is in the background, and I admire her for doing it. The woman said to him, I see your prophet, sir. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. These verses are integral not just to this whole interaction, but to the entire Gospel of John. These verses I just read, 19 to 24, so important. You know, the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Deuteronomy 12 says that God's people were to worship in one central location. The Samaritans worshipped at Shechem, Mount Gerizim, even though their temple, which was a rival temple to the Jerusalem temple, it had been reduced to rubble about a century and a half before Jesus has this conversation with the Samaritan woman. Their temple was in ruins. The debate over the proper place of worship divided these two related peoples. It wasn't their only difference, but it was a a point of contention, a sore point. Jesus aligns himself with neither side. He insists that since God is spirit, God's not confined to space or temples. He could be accessed anywhere. You don't have to go cross a certain border or enter a certain structure to come close to God. He's accessible anywhere. It's as though the entire world is one hot spot, one massive, well, not even a spot, but it's one global, free, wireless spot, the whole planet. And the one who comes to God cannot do it by ritual, by religion. That person must be truthful. That person must be genuine and sincere. That means worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Now, I'm afraid that that many, if not most Christians, have, have really misunderstood this verse. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? Typically, they'll think, well, not just an excess of enthusiasm, spirit, like you're you have zeal without knowledge and you're energetic, but truth. You need to have doctrinal truth. You need to understand technically. You know, what it means, uh, who Jesus is, how we follow him, how, we're be- how we become Christians, and how we're to arrange the church, and so forth. 
I doubt very much that that's what Jesus has in mind. Would he really be telling this Samaritan woman that, you know, you've got to really work on your doctrine, lady, and, and your attitude's not right? This is not what he's saying. Spirit and truth. Spirit is not zeal. And truth is not correct doctrine. And once again, yes, they're important. That's not, that's not so. What, the, what Jesus is stressing is the importance of worshiping God spiritually, not spatially. We worship him in spirit, not in one particular space. So spiritually, not spatially. Truth is personal truthfulness. I know I may sound a bit postmodern, but I'm not far from it. But being personally truthful, open. How about authenticity, genuineness? To come to God, we've got to be real. We cannot come in pretense. We must come in truth, right? There are lots of passages that support this view. Truth as integrity, uh, fidelity, reliability. No, so you're trustworthy. Someone can lean on you. Someone could trust you. But it's it's more than just that. It's it's this openness, and you can see uh, a number of passages I've written into the notes in First Kings, Hosea, Jeremiah, Psalms, Isaiah, Zechariah, and Ezekiel. Please think about that. It's not that God doesn't care about the content of our faith, what we believe, what we think. Of course he does. And we're to love him wholeheartedly, and as Jesus says, with our whole mind too. But spirit and truth uh, refers to God's accessibility, yet our need to be honest, to be genuine. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you so very much for this amazing passage. I pray that this day, I, those listening, everyone, will, will live that way that we'll call on you, we'll realize you're close, you're always there, and that we'll be genuine, not trying to impress, not trying to spin, uh, twist, or anything else that Jesus would into, that we would be uh, honest. We are who we are. Give us a deep spirit of truth, of authenticity, for we ask this in the name of your Son. Okay, everybody, have a great day. Back tomorrow as we continue in John chapter 4. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on a tour through John. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.